Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. We have been talking a lot about cultural capital, but we're going to continue today and I think finally wrap up uh, for our poor listeners who are tired of hearing about this, but I never tire of hearing or talking about it, so that's where we're at. Good. Well, I can hear all the uh, everyone clicking off right now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the reason I wanted to continue was I was just reflecting so years ago, uh, I started to hear kind of what you were saying about cultural capital. I started to take it seriously. And some of that was just kind of taking a stab in the dark, um, trying to trying to make sense of, of what you were saying and having you refine it a little bit. But I figured it might be helpful to reflect on that, reflect on some of the lessons I feel like I've learned and, and just kind of go from there. So mm-hmm. here we are. Here we um, are. The first, the first thing I'll start with is thinking about bigger picture examples. I think can be kind of daunting to think from 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 me to that. It, I don't, I don't even know how to make sense of that. Um, so, zooming in and thinking about starting off uh, from different positions of life, if if I'm starting to take cultural capital seriously, some of the things I've seen, uh, particularly in the tech industry. I think are are pretty interesting, especially when it comes to thinking about what you had said last time about three years, taking three years to learn the language and literature of Babylon. And when I first started taking cultural capital seriously, I think I, I embracing that something about that three-year mark was really helpful for me, understanding that I'm probably not going to make any dent in this for at least three years, and I have to commit to being somewhere for three years. Oddly enough, in the tech world, you typically see the the average tenure for someone kind of being around that one and a half to two and a half year mark. And I, I remember working at uh, at a company where suddenly a decision was made, and you started to see people leave. They they were concerned things were going going downhill, and uh, didn't really get excited about their work. And, and just in the tech world, they jump ship. And I, I remember really contemplating whether or not I ought to and just feeling a peace about staying, even though I, I knew staying was going to be quite challenging. And what I realized is suddenly all of these vacancies started to, to open up in terms of responsibility and who needed to do more or pick things up. And by staying, I realized... I, I now was just by default growing in my cultural capital because I was growing in responsibility. These things had to be done. I was willing to do them. Suddenly, when we began to hire or, or grow again, I was a veteran. I had just stuck it out and I had experience. Others, new, especially new individuals, started to look to me to give them guidance. 
and it's just almost like by by default just sticking it out for that time alone gave me cultural capital i thought it was pretty fascinating mm-hmm. but then as i started to to review more resumes and and i think i mentioned this in a previous conversation we had but just reviewing resumes i started to see even more elements of cultural capital that i, I hadn't really thought about before you know i i went to school and I studied information systems, but it was a business degree. And I was thinking about, you know, there, there was some touch on hard skills there. We did very, very rudimentary programming, but a lot of it was soft skills. And a lot of it was management and I found it helpful. But interestingly, as, as now being someone who is stuck it out of the company and is making hiring decisions, I realized hard skills really are your entry into institutions that are culture shaping or culturally impactful. So if you want to work at a bigger company, you need a resume that shows you have tremendous skill. And then often you grow in that company due to your soft skills, but your entry point really is hard skills. So just in reflecting on that, I was, I was realizing there's two elements. There's a draw to, you know, a draw, especially if you're in tech and you're trying to take this seriously, there's a draw to, I just want to make more money or I want to solve really interesting problems. And that's great. But if you're taking cultural capital seriously, there's benefit to staying at a company, but there's also benefit if you're trying to enter into companies to really being tremendously focused on hard skills and developing that craft. Uh, being the best physicist, being the best mathematician, being the best computer scientist or engineer, not necessarily studying the soft skills. Because I think they do come. And if if you have an element of introspection, emotional intelligence, those things do come. So those are the first two big things. I'm curious, what's what's your take on those? Where'd you come up with this uh, distinction between hard and soft? Mm, yeah, good. Good thoughts. Maybe that's not a good distinction. I don't know. Um, I, I started to look at resumes and started to see how obvious it was uh, on paper what someone's hard skills were, you know, especially at entry, entry level, even to transitioning jobs. You know, if someone's leading a project, that's sometimes good. That's more, I think, of of a soft skill. Um, but then how, like exactly what problems they would solve and how they solve them, you know, getting into the very technical details, that's a much more sellable or transferable skill. Uh, it's the the fluff detector, as I like to call it, is... is uh, much easier to bypass. So if someone's just surviving on soft skills, they're not necessarily going to bring that value to the roles I'm typically looking for because um, I, I need the technical and the soft. And it's very easy for people to BS their way through the soft. And so I think the hard skills really prove more that not only can you, can you lead, can you, can you organize but you can actually hands to keys really solve problems. That's good. You didn't answer my question. <laughs> Sorry. Well, repeat your question, please. 
Where'd you come up with this distinction between hard and soft? Maybe, maybe it was business school. Maybe it was in college. I'm, I've, I've, I don't recall. I don't recall. I guess thinking about, I think, I think the, the phrase soft skills is pretty common. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, that's probably in soft skills being more, I don't know, relational. Um, yeah. Versus, versus hard skills, I guess it's just, I, I'm thinking of that as, as simply the opposite, but I don't know. Does that distinction not exist? Might not. And by the way, this, uh, I, I understand where this comes from. Um, <clears throat> I think it's Michael Barone might have botched his name there. He was with U.S. News and World Report. He wrote a book about 20 years ago, Hard and Soft America. Hmm. Um, but that the distinction goes back even further. Uh, I'd like to propose to you, <clears throat> first of all, when you hear hard and soft, just pull the lens way out. What does that imply? Hard and soft skills especially if you want to get something done. Well, there's a, yeah, I, I could see there's definitely a, it could be a negative connotation to soft and Why? a positive connotation no to hard. Way. Why? Like we say someone's soft. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, picturing like a, a foundation of a building. You typically don't want that to be soft. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Don't build on sand. That's good. Yeah. Sand is nice and soft. Um, Someone look at individuals soft. What what does that infer? What does that imply? Um, weak. Uh, weak. Yeah. 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 Uh, not really <clears throat> a person of convictions. Yeah. Um, pretty soft on their view there on that. Uh, yeah. Hard. What does that What does that convey? Strength, integrity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. Like your biceps. Uh, <laughs> I happen to know where work, Pat works out. Yeah, so first of all, you have an implicit uh, one, one superior to the other. You don't talk about it. This is, this is what um, many have said, that all day long we're quoting all sorts of people that we've never even heard of, but we're quoting them. And yeah. What we're, really, what we're quoting here is uh, the entire 19th century movement called positivism and Again, I grant you that loses most everyone. If you want a root and tune good book on it, it's called The Metaphysical Club, uh, written by Louis Manand, professor at Harvard. That's actually, it would be in my top 10 because he helped me to understand that you had this uh, group of elites who had cultural capital. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., for example, a Supreme Court Justice. And they uh, tried to foster a world in which the meta, anything beyond the physical, is just a fairy tale. It's not real. Now, people believe in it. They're a little soft in the head. But we want to be tolerant. But we're not talking about truth anymore. We're talking about tastes or preferences or religion or psychology or sociology or um eq later on and stuff like that i mean squishy stuff that you can't measure like you can measure a foot 
is that board 12 inches? Oh, we can measure that. Code. That's the real stuff. Now, if you think this isn't um, pervasive in our universities, you'd be well served to read the book. Actually, my father read it, and he would say before he passed away, that was one book that helped him to explain why he said to me, with all good intentions and a good heart, but when I told him I was going to college to study psychology, he said, ah, the soft sciences. Because he graduated, he got his doctorate out of the University of Michigan. And when you read about the University of Michigan and Johns Hopkins and these elite schools, University of Michigan is called the Public Ivy. You read about that they were built on the foundation of positivism. School you went to, same way, Pat, University of Maryland is positivism. And so the campus is laid out. There is no center to the campus as a liberal arts school or the universities, really, the great universities that were founded in the Middle Ages where the queen science that made sense of all the sciences was theology. So you go on the University of Maryland, you have separate little disciplines all in their separate little buildings. So the joke is you go to business school and you learn how to do spreadsheets, but you never read a lick of Shakespeare. So this is the, uh, I don't buy the hard and soft because it's relatively recent it's fascinating if you look at the, the uh, modern university that came out of the Middle Ages, it was understood that there are liberal arts and servile arts. That's a distinction I think makes more sense. And what would the distinction between those be? Yeah, see, I, was, I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> uh, liberal means broad, generous. Uh, so the liberal arts, which sat in the center, and all around the circle, actually, uh, widened how the other sciences fit together. Science is the Latin word for knowledge. So this is all talking about knowledge. With positivism, by the way, religion is no longer in the field of knowledge. It doesn't tell you how the world works. It tells you what people believe, and people can believe things and be believe them sincerely, but also be sincerely wrong. The whole point is all that gets set aside into over this realm called, well, that's your opinion, uh, that's your preference. But in this world over there, tolerance is the highest virtue. And that's what the positivists said. And if you believe otherwise, you're intolerant. So you can see how this is momentous. So liberal means uh, broad. And the reason that theology was in the center of all these disciplines, tech and the rest all arranged around them, was that theology widened the lens so you could make sense of the other ones. The servile arts were called, they are serving in that because they are utilitarian. And so theology makes sense of things as does psychology, I believe and today even neuroscience. But the liberal arts help you widen your lens so you make sense of things. The utilitarian arts are how you make things. And you have to have both hands. Make sense of things 
and make things. Put another way, the liberal arts answer the question, why technology, to what end? The servile arts answer, how do you make technologies? What makes them work? What do we make? This is quite helpful thinking about, I think, the state we find ourselves in. So what you're saying is, it's quite beautiful. I, I think what you're saying makes a ton of sense and seems to align more with that ought case. It ought to be this way. Companies ought to view things from that perspective, but they also do not today. So as, as someone graduating college or someone going into college thinking, how do I take cultural capital seriously? This is, to me, this is the both and. You have to learn these pieces, which is challenging. Growing up, as you can see, clearly, me being influenced by positivism. Or, I'm sorry, positivism. Yeah, positivism. Yeah, philosophers always come up with these really yeah, Come difficult. on now. They, why don't they just call it, you know, Barney, like the Barney view or something. Right. So you, you have that clearly influencing. There's there's a, a need to rediscover exactly what you're talking about. This difference between the arts and a different way to look at it. Mm-hmm. But there's also the reality, which is the, the world operates based on positivism. And what they are looking for tends to be I think, like you said, the hard skills, the the foundation of the strong, the uh, that pursuit. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. I would say uh, that by and large, the uh, the business schools that I'm familiar with, with the exception of one, I can think of a new um, business school. By and large, it's what uh, Ian McGilchrist would say. Uh, because 95% of the Western world's population biases the left hemisphere and the left hemisphere is narrowly focused, then it's going to, people are going to be sort of non-consciously narrow the lens. And so if someone makes it, as this classification is hard and soft and we're looking for hard on this stuff, uh, you're gonna go, yeah, it makes sense because I don't even know what soft is. and so I make these distinctions and I'm taught these distinctions. And so I know how to write code. And that's what I do. To what end? To yeah. make a product. Why? To make a profit. We, you know, we have investors. And we want to maximize uh, return. Okay. And how does that work? make the world a better place? Um, well, we make technologies that help people navigate cars. Okay. Now, see, you can tell once you start to widen the lens out, you can just feel it lose that hardness, that solidity, that sense of, yeah, it's more, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the reason that, um, as some, if you're a, you know, what I would call as an active Christian, you actually have your imagination engaged and you're not just uh, gum chomping. Let's get practical. Uh, you're going to be in the league with Tristan Harris. who we've talked about before that 
as a Google engineer writing code, began to dawn on him, to what end? Especially when I go to my colleagues' conferences, in the moment there's a break, we're all on our devices. And he looked around this room and said, I'm paraphrasing, oh my God, what are we creating? And now that, Pat, all the data is rolling in, and it is rolling in, and we talked about it on these podcasts about the mental health crisis amongst youth, amongst a particular age, you find most people in tech evidence very little concern about it other than a sort of pat on the head because, yeah, that's all in that soft area. Our investors are investing and we are, we are an ad revenue business, period. It, the Greek words, if you know a little bit of Greek, first of all, you're dangerous, but <laughs> it's the liberal arts give you telos, the servile arts give you technique. Telos is the Greek word for purpose, to what end? And um, te technique is technical, you understand that one easier. But it was always felt you have to know both and, both and. And when you don't, I mean, this is a, another discussion for another day, but thoughtful Christians know that once we lost the telos for nuptial union, sex, then it comes down to technique. And that's not only the business model for pornography, but I'm inside enough marriages to know that's often what happens inside a marriage. Couples just get bored and it becomes technique and exploring more and more techniques you've lost sight of the telos. But for tech, it's the same uh, challenge that you have, Pat, is a thoughtful Christian would say, technologies are necessary, they're important, but they can't answer questions that go beyond the physical world to the metaphysical, to, as the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal rightly noted, after the massacre at the Uvalde, Texas Elementary School, they said the real problem here is social and spiritual and the loss of mediating institutions like the church. Now, the Wall Street Journal is not a Christian magazine, but they understand that, of course, technologies come to play in this, but ultimately, this goes beyond just physical guns, physical people, and techniques. There are, there's a moral and spiritual dimension that is actually truer and deeper and more profound and more helpful. And I think if you just come through business school, 
um, you pretty much have had that turned into an ethics course, which is something you sort of check off the box. Yeah, you're right. And I, I think this further highlights the challenge that, that I think maybe is, is what you're, what you often call people to, which is in pursuing cultural capital to be taken seriously, you have to know the language and literature of Babylon. In this case, hard yes. skills, uh, quote unquote, the technique is highly valued and quite important. And so you, you must take that seriously and develop that if you are to be taken seriously by cultural shaping institutions. However, if you only take that seriously, you'll end up just like all the other Babylonians and you, you cannot lose or cannot, uh, well, you can, cannot lose yourself in, in your, maybe your, your faithful calling through that. And so what, what you're talking about here is the both and pursuit. Not only should you pursue the technique, but you also cannot forget that tell off. So how do you, how do you do that? And how do you surround yourself maybe with, with, uh, resources that, that help you accomplish that? Cause likely that's a whole different path of learning, especially if you grow up with some kind of, uh, evangelical background where almost neither of those things have strong foundations. That's right. And, um, and that's why I do think that, uh, I agree, you know, an NT right now points to Ian McGilchrist and his book, The Master and His Emissary is a way forward for evangelicals. Take note of that if you're an evangelical and ask yourself if you're familiar with this book, have you even read it? It's not an easy read, but it will widen your lens. McGilchrist will show the neuroimaging indicates that 95% of the population in the Western world biases the left hemisphere. That means they non-consciously pay attention through the left so this isn't sort of any sort of a not of a conscious attempt to be quote sucked into anything. It's just simply ninety five percent of our behaviors are non conscious, and so if ninety five percent of the population, so you have this. I do think that you see these uh, rem this remnant, so to say, or glimmers of hope, and they're not necessarily even uh, Christians, but you see it with Miguel Christ. You see it, he's trying to widen the lens, so to say. You see it with um, two professors at Stanford, I guess probably 10 plus years ago now, 15, wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review called The Ambidextrous Organization. That's fascinating, and mm -hmm. it takes into, but the, uh, the data seems to show that 0.01% of organizations in the U.S., or firms founded in the U.S. are actually ambidextrous, 0.01%. So there's a pretty big uh, opportunity right there. And then I would also draw attention to the uh, new business school at uh, Catholic U of America, the uh, Bush School of Business, founded probably eight, nine years ago now. And uh, they would hold to this view of that we're talking about here, the idea of uh, liberal and servile arts, both called arts, by the way, uh, and uh, rather than hard and soft, and they're making a good stab at it. And now here, here's the reason I say that: it takes 
the people who put that together had cultural capital. So they were able to raise the 60 million to launch that school, including 10 million as, as a gift from a man who is well known and he's well known as a religious skeptic, not a Christian, but he had never seen this model. And by the way, Pat, here's, here's another place to prayer, I think is hope, is the model is built on what's called Catholic social thought, which is far broader than faith and work, but it encompasses faith and work. But it's more holistic view, I would call it ambidextrous. In fact, even the image used for it is very much just like uh, both hemispheres of the brain being interactive. And now Tim Keller, who is probably in a losing battle with um, pancreatic cancer, of the eight points that he says Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City is pursuing, is he said, we need to develop a Protestant version of Catholic social thought. In other words, faith and work has not had the impact that he hoped. Well, I would say that's because implicit even in a phrase, and I'm not picking on them, but what's implicit in having this phrase faith and work and trying to integrate them? I mean, it's, in, it's implied that they're separate. And you're trying to integrate soft and hard. Mm. Yeah, I think it's doomed. And uh, I would think from what I've read, I don't have firsthand on this, but what I've read is there's sort of all the investment and the millions they put into us and they look at the results and go, this is not what we'd hoped for. I would, I would ask them, why a Protestant version of Catholic social thought? You don't have to call it Catholic social thought, but it's sort of like you see a fantastic sports car and you say, we need a version of that. Well, why don't you just buy it? <laughs> Why reinvent the wheel? Yeah, yeah. Well, well that's grist for another mill. <laughs> what what I like that you're you're drawing out here is so I, what I've been talking about is probably someone more on the the younger end, sinking their teeth in as I, as as I felt sort of that call of wow, what Mike's saying makes a ton of sense. And I, I see, I see how this is all based on my, this faith tradition. And uh, you know, I was college age, starting to take this seriously. But many of your audience are much older than that, um, or at different phases between college and and you know even retirement. And so I think the question then is, how do you? Or, or what what is doable at that stage of life and i think regaining cultural capital is is probably you can call me out if you disagree but it's probably not as doable as as you get older you know you have a you have a window in life where that is much easier to do and so then the question is well what what can you do if you hear this you resonate with it but that window might not be as open as it used to. And so maybe sure. you have some cultural capital, but not as much as you like. But I, I think 
you know, I, if I'm processing that, just knowing some of the craziness that seems to be out there today mm-hmm. in the world, it's very easy to get cynical and it's very easy to get frustrated in the political realm and the church, this, and even hear some of the things you're saying and just be like, yeah, it's, this is why it's a mess. It's because the culture, you know, the culture is just a mess. <laughs> and so I think, I think I like what you're saying in that there, there is a call still at that age to, to seek out resources that help understand the telos that help to further shed light on how we ought to be thinking about these things and either to teach that or to further resource the, the younger generation who does have a wider window. And I think that's important. That's important to sit on because you know, one of the other pieces I was reflecting on was where we put our investment. When I started to take cultural capital seriously, I did start to question some of the, some of the, the organizations that I gave to that I think are good and helpful, but are not going to change the world in the next five years. You know, they may be college ministries or other ministries. And, uh, it, it made me very much reevaluate where I'm putting my investment. Well, I think, um, so listeners will, will close on this. You can chew on this if you like. Uh, first of all, there's uh, generally about six different types of capital. There's um, relational capital, there's financial capital, there's cultural capital. Uh, first of all, relational and financial don't necessarily translate into cultural capital. Evangelicals are terrific at amassing relational capital, and they assume that it magically turns into cultural. It doesn't. What it magically, unmagically turns into is a large, passionate peripheral group. So if you have relational capital, um, and you're older, if you're a boomer like mine, generally you have also financial capital. And so to your point, um, you're not going to earn cultural capital probably in the years you have remaining. If you actually were thinking strategically, you would transfer with your network, a la relational capital, go after the financial capital in the boomer generation, which is significant. I have heard it. I've heard numbers in the trillions that evangelicals are sitting on. And I would say transfer and um, invest that in younger people who are serious about earning cultural capital. So that's sort of on the macro. Um, and, um, mm. and then second, when um, so we're going to make a correction here. When you, when you say, you know, Mike says and Mike says, I'd say, hmm. Listen, I really do feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. I love so. that you hate it when I say that. <laughs> no, no. It's just something about it. I'm going to reach through the internet here and punch you in the face. Uh, there's, we're, we're just standing on the shoulders of giants. There's nothing original here. But the fact is, I tip my hat to uh, the Roman Catholic Church in this regard to recognize they have people in the business world who understand, for example, the word company, which was replaced by corporation, but company comes from, is the idea of break bread with, how many of you have been to Panera? Pane, bread, co, with. And so a company was 
was was uh, had a, something before beyond making a product. It's people you broke bread with, and there are thoughtful people on this who understand Catholic social thought who see you know one of the things we do in our company is we break bread together. I know that sounds like you know I'm from Mars now, but you see the point. Corporation doesn't come down there; it comes down to maximizing investor return. You can just hear the language of, you imagine getting married and saying, listen, I want to marry you so I can maximize my return on the rest of my life. Hmm. Gosh, honey, that sounds great. I mean, where's the love? So I would encourage older people, and right now I don't think the trends are favorable on this, older people, to do what uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and the rest of it are going to do. Give it away. Invest it in younger people. I was talking to a guy yesterday. I think he has relational capital to do something significant. He has a wide network. And he's just unsure. I, I want to say to him, the resources are there. It's got to be a, you got to be a picture of what you're going to do over the next 20 years, not the next few, to help a younger generation of evangelicals earn cultural capital. I, I don't know what boomers do because I find invariably what they're worried about is uh, not outliving uh, their portfolio, their retirement portfolio. And if the statistics I read, my son Stephen just sent me something that uh, the average boomer doesn't have nearly enough money put away to, uh, they're, they're going to outlive their funds. And uh, if that's true, then you don't see much financial capital because they're going to hang onto it like a death grip because they're petrified. And I think, well, that's what you get when you have an education that doesn't widen your imagination. It's as if there is no God. He certainly isn't going to provide. And I haven't been good in, a steward in terms of socking away for the future. Boomers haven't done that particularly well. You see younger people doing it, by the way, when you talk about this idea of investing for the future, it's called a 529. So if you're doing it for your kids in college, I would say if you're older, do it for younger generations. And if you need help, call me. I could point you to some, I think, some emerging efforts by some younger Christians who want to earn cultural capital. And we could assist them by widening their lens, even in something as simple as what we heard today, hard and soft. And we don't need to build a building to do it. But it's got to be done if a younger generation is going to earn the cultural capital that by and large, but not exclusively, hasn't been done by evangelicals. And I would also close with, uh, if you are older or younger, and if you want to read a blow-by-blow account of an effort to do that many years ago. The book is called Joy at Work by Dennis Bakke, B-A-K-K-E. And the company that he and his business partner uh, started was AES, which became the world's largest, at that time, world's largest distributor of energy. So a tech company. But he also started it he said to upend 19th century notions, including 
people. So he's a thoughtful Christian who understood positivism. And he understood you've got to have a telos purpose as well as a technology product. Thank you.